Hello, and welcome to In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian churches. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, stated clerk of the EPC. Our prayer is that God uses Dean and his guests to both inform and inspire you about how God is working in and through the EPC. The motto of our family of churches is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you very much, Rachel, as always, for that introduction and helping to tee up our time together as we gather for the podcast in all things uh, podcast of all things related to the EPC. Of course, you all know that our if you've been a part of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church for any time period, the motto that kind of guides and shapes, it's really a culture statement more than anything, is uh, in the essentials unity, in the non-essentials liberty, but in all things love. And uh, where we are today in our world with this increasing polarization and people kind of uh, retrenching in their corners and and lobbing at one another, whether over social media or in other venues, uh, we need to go back to this idea that in all things, in all things, we do them with love uh, as our Savior uh, has done. So um, we gather together and have these conversations every Friday and we, we talk to EPC thought leaders we talk to authors, we talk to EPC staff uh, who are serving the larger church, and we hope these conversations are edifying to you and that you would be willing to not only listen to them, but uh, share them on social so that others could tune in to the conversation as well. While this is uh, particularly an in-house conversation in the EPC, we welcome everyone to, to be a part of these conversations, and we hope that they might have uh, down the road a, a, a larger audience, as I think our conversation today will be a applicable. The, uh, the book we're going to be looking at today by Dave Walstead, which is called Shift, Catalyzing Creative Change and Innovative Christian Ministry, um, is something that is a gift not only to EPC churches, but to churches outside of our denomination, and I think uh, Christian leaders, uh, whatever uh, industry or field they may find themselves in. So this is definitely one of those conversations today that will have greater uh, implications beyond just the EPC. Before we dig into that conversation, I do want to speak to our two sponsors today, uh, the unofficial official sponsors of our podcast uh, for this period of time, and they are BRI, the Benefits Resources, Inc. of the EPC, and World Outreach inside the EPC. Uh, BRI services all of our teaching elders and their families, as well as many of our global partners, in providing not only health care benefits for them, but also in terms of retirement. Stunning to realize recently that a significant percentage of our pastors out there don't even have a named beneficiary on their life insurance. That is just stunning to me. And so uh, if anything, BRI wants you to know, put somebody's name that you love down on your life insurance as a beneficiary and take advantage of some of the things that BRI offers, such as our wellness programs and incentives. There are a lot of ways in which caring for you, our pastors and our global workers, is our primary focus specifically through BRI. But also our friends at World Outreach uh, would want you to know that we continue to reach some of the hardest places uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, We go into frontier communities. There is a, a project that we're working on right now in Indonesia where we're growing sea cucumbers. It's a very entrepreneurial, creative approach to reaching one of the most 
difficult, unreached Muslim people groups in all of the um, Asian Pacific region. And uh, in particular, uh, Indonesia has more Muslims uh, in their community. It's the most Muslim populated country on the planet. A lot of people didn't know that. And we are in uh, a very challenging, difficult place there. People of World Outreach is... um, is doing uh, fantastic work uh, in those in those communities. So uh, as you think and pray and listen to all things related to the EPC, remember our friends at World Outreach and remember our friends at BRI who exist to serve you and help bring the Great Commission um, to, um, to those who need to hear the good news of a Savior who has died for them and loves them deeply. It is our mission, after all. The EPC's mission is we exist to carry out the Great Commission, as Presbyterian, Evangelical, Reformed, and Missional congregations. Well, one of those points of the spear that lives out that Great Commission in the context of community and does that in a missional, evangelical, Presbyterian, Reformed way is a church that's part of the EPC called The Table in Dallas, Texas. And we're privileged to have with us today Dave Walstead, who is the pastor of The Table and uh, the author of the book that I mentioned earlier. And we're grateful to have him on our podcast. Uh, David, welcome to In All Things. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a privilege and a pleasure. Well, it's a delight to get to know you. Uh, Before we turned the mics on, we started having this conversation where I feel like if you and I could just spend a little bit of time together, we might become besties. I'm not sure, but I don't want to presume anything, but um, just your heart, your passion, the way you think, uh, the way you're approaching life and ministry is super interesting to me and exciting, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. I think it's going to be a gift to the church. Well, I, I pray that it is as well, and I think you're probably right. We probably would be besties if we got to spend more time together. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk more about that offline. We don't want to take sure. people down the trail of a bromance even before it got started. Yes. But, um, <laughs> so tell us, David, a little bit about yourself. Give us your background, some context so that we can get to know you before we dig into the conversation. I've been in full-time vocational Christian ministry for a little over 30 years now. Um, the past 25 as an ordained teaching elder in the EPC, and the last 20 here, just coming up to 20, the lead pastor of the Table Dallas, which you heard about. I've been married for 34 years, have four adult children that are all grown and flown the coop, so to speak. And so we're empty nesters, which we are kind of enjoying, although you're never really empty nesters, Dean, are you? They, do, do, they come have, back. Have any of them boomeranged back to you yet? Yeah, for for little bits and pieces, short stays, and you know, in between apartments and graduating college, things like that. But yeah. for the most part, we're we're empty nesters now. So and, I've I've got um, seven. If you didn't know that, and oh my, three three of my twenty year olds have boomerang boomeranged back, and we're 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 dealing with the we had an empty nest and now we don't have an empty nest syndrome. So um, you can pray for me. I can do that, certainly. And so we we just, we love Dallas. We've been here now for 20 years, raised our children, you know, through the formative years here. We just love um, doing ministry in the context of, you know, a big city. I was born and raised just outside of Queens on Long Island. And so I have this kind of a love for uh, a big, vibrant community. And so when the opportunity came some 20 years ago through the EPC and some of the connections to connect uh, what was then called Cross Point Community Church with um, myself when I was uh, associate pastor at Brainerd Presbyterian, also an EPC church in Chattanooga. When that opportunity came, it was like um, a perfect mix for us to come here and literally, really um, lead a transition. Uh, this 
is the third, if we want to call it that, the third iteration, the table that is, is the third iteration of um, this church in the past 20 years. When I came 20 years ago, they had been without a pastor for about two years. There was some, I don't want to say conflict isn't the right word. There was a, there was a diversity of opinion over the direction. They were a strongly Willow Creek influenced congregation at the time. And so they were doing a full on Willow Creek model and there were some um, who were also listening to what was happening at the denominational level. Um, and that shift we wanted to make toward a more missional model. And so, oh, there was a candidate who was going to kind of carry them in the traditional way. And then there was myself who was going to lead them toward the missional um, direction. And so when I arrived here 20 years ago, it took us about two and a half years, almost three years to kind of figure out who we were, what we were doing. We decided that for us, the best thing to do was to build a space for the community. So we built a performance art venue that seated about 175 people. It was a black box theater, uh, surround sound recording studio, art galleries. And we just opened it to the community. We called it Theater 166 because there are 168 hours in the week. And we used it for two on Sunday morning. And then the rest of the time was open. And we held literally thousands of events for the community over nearly eight and a half years um, that we were we were doing that ministry and about four and a half years ago uh, the owner of the facility the one that we were working with that uh, helped us build it out supported what we were doing decided to sell and that place was was bought out by a, a persian investment company and they said they didn't want a church and so we were kind of out on the street so we needed to kind of reimagine who we were and so we took a couple of months in prayer and fasting and did a lot of research into spiral dynamics and group dynamic theory and a little bit about ourselves and who we are and the way that we thought. And we decided that we wanted to simplify. And so we created what is now known as the table, where we um, organized our church into groups of 25 20 to 25 people who meet around a meal, gather around a meal throughout the week, Thursday nights. Uh, before COVID, Thursday nights, Saturday nights, and two different Sunday gatherings. We center around a meal and fellowship, some liturgy, and then engagement in the scripture along with communion. It's about a 90-minute gathering, and um, we have just seen the spiritual formation in our congregation just skyrocket, and um, a number of congregations in the EPC and other places have come and checked this out. We're doing some consulting with churches who are, you know, people wanting to plant churches or churches wanting to reboot, um, looking for a model that's simple and sustainable and uh, relatable, especially amongst those who are millennials and even Gen Z. There's so much good stuff there, David, to dig down on. It's hard for me to, it's like I'm looking at a big juicy steak and I'm not sure where to take my first bite. I was listening to a podcast the other day with Andy Stanley. And he was talking about that he really believes that part of the, the problem of where we are today in terms of why we see this incredible polarization in society, even among Christians, where people are lobbing, you know, ideological grenades at each other from the opposite corners and um, on social and, and the ways in which, you know, their civil dialogue has just gone away. And he, he really called it a crisis of discipleship that some of the models that the church in the States has, has embraced over the last 20 or 30 years 
have led to a crisis of discipleship where people are exchanging their ideological and even political views, taking dominance over their theological or their Christian views. And I wonder if in your experience at the table, because you use the word uh, spiritual formation, um, Mm -hmm. if you're seeing that kind of approach where you're gathering in groups of clusters of 25 or 30 around the table, which strikes me again as being inherently biblical, right? It Mm -hmm. seems like what Jesus did a lot of. Um, You're gathering around the table with people and families and conversations. I wonder if the the spiritual formation you're seeing uh, might potentially be an antidote for the discipleship crisis that Andy Stanley is pointing to. What are your thoughts on that? I love Andy Stanley. I love that take because that's um, it's a great um, way of kind of identifying for us as a community. You know, when we were faced with this, this shift that we needed to make, I mean, we were without a space. We weren't sure exactly what we were going to do. But what we realized was that where the real uh, spiritual formation and discipleship was taking place was in our small groups. We called them labs. Like you go to a lab to practically work out what you've learned in science class. So we called them labs and they were just, the, the attendance was great. The interaction was great. And usually they had some sort of a, you know, snack or a meal or something. And they were just super well attended. In fact, better attended than what we called our, our big Sunday show. And so as a leadership team, we said, well, what would it look like if we, if we decided to, to, instead of doing the big show, let's call it that, the big Sunday event as a way to draw people in, in and then encourage them to get into these small groups where we think the real formation was happening, the real transformation was happening. What would it look like if we redirected our entire approach to ministry along this idea of creating and, and teaching people how to engage scripture for themselves, take responsibility for their own spiritual formation, and then how do we do this together in community? And that's kind of what led us to this this model of away from the sage on the stage to this um, this person like myself who on a Sunday morning or a Thursday night or whenever the table is meeting, whose job is simply to facilitate a dance. And it's a dance between the scriptures, which we believe are alive and breathing, um, our life experiences, the spirit, the Holy Spirit that's resonant in all of us. And there's this dance that happens around the table where we, we talk about our life experiences. We engage with the text. We do semiotics. We, we look at the linguistics. We look at the culture and honor and shame and all those pieces. And we kind of put it all together and say, okay, so what do we do with a, with a scripture that wasn't written to us, but it's written for us? Mm. What do we take from this and how do we then um, use it to then more effectively be what we call being third testaments, right? Peter says we're these living epistles, right? So how do we live this out in our everyday life? And the interactive piece there just is such a beautiful ebb and flow as people talk about, you know, their life experiences and their challenges and the things that they've done and that we can do as a community, but also as individuals. And it just, from a pastoral perspective, after nearly 30 years of ministry, um, my wife and I were having this conversation last week, the last five years of ministry have been the most refreshing, encouraging, and um, exciting, even in the midst of COVID, because we had a format that allowed us to to almost seamlessly, obviously minus the meals, but almost seamlessly do the same thing across a you know a video platform like Zoom or 
Google Classroom to do kind of the same thing and to continue to see the congregation grow both spiritually and um, numerically. Well, there's so much to dig down on here, David. I, I feel like I've only taken one bite and the steak has just gotten bigger. So let's just go a little bit into, what did you call it? The sage on the stage, I think is the way you referred to it. Yeah. Um, you know, we live in a culture that seems, an even Christian culture that seems to feed a narcissistic personality disorder. Right. We we seem yes. to um, I mean, if you can, it's like watching a train wreck. But the the rise and fall of Mars Hill is an example of that, right. where we're saying, what is it about us that seems to go towards this big event with the sage on the stage? And yet it strikes me that what you're describing and I don't mean to overstate this, but what you're describing seems so strikingly similar to what Jesus did with his disciples right? We've gone a long way from a a guy in the Middle East walking around with a group of men and women on dusty roads, talking about life and eating meals together and sharing the great Mm -hmm. truths of the kingdom to like, you know, putting together our our song sheets and performance and getting the lights ready and, and, um, or, or even practicing with our choirs. I mean, where we've come as a church, even the best and healthiest expressions of the church, it seems it doesn't uh, point us toward the kind of discipleship that you're talking about. Well, I think you've you've hit on a key a key thing that we identified in our community and in our particular um, ministry context. I can't say this for everybody else, but when we were running our theater, which was a, I mean, it was the full on what you would expect. You know, we had a what was it? I think a 17 or 18 foot you know digital screen up front. It's, uh, it was great for a preacher. I could preach in the round. I had people surrounding me in a black box theater. So I'm on the floor and the, and the chairs kind of go up at a gentle angle around and you have all these lights and it was just, you know, we could do all kinds of things, five piece band, modern worship um, and all of those. But what we realized was, and I don't want to get into the weeds of spiral dynamics, which is all about the way people think, but we realized that in our community, heavily influenced as millennials and and gen x i'm gen x and a lot of people who come are gen x have millennial children now um, even gen z and i realized there was a there was a, a huge dichotomy between those who were of that millennial age and even gen x younger gen x i guess and millennials and gen z as a kind of revolt or a pushback against that kind of narcissistic performance-based model of church that was born out of this time period in the United States where the United States looked and thought and acted very differently. And so for us, for us, it was a way to say, how do we engage a group? And this is literally was driven by a lot of our um, older, at the time, older congregants who had children who were no longer coming to the church or grandchildren who had no interest in coming to church but when we offer them an opportunity to, to be engaged, to, to sit around the table, to kind of level the playing field, so to speak, and say, hey, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm further along on the spiritual journey than you are. Yes, I've been, in, you know, in, I've been a follower for so many years, and I've had so many life experiences that, that put me as, you know, as a guide to you. But I also recognize that you're on this journey as well, and your journey doesn't always mirror mine. So what are the areas in which, you know, we, we believe that this great story that God is, that God is writing or creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, 
how does that story and your story, how do they, inter how do they intersect? Where do they overlap? Because they do. And so my job here as the pastor, the lead pastor is trying to find those areas of overlap so that these people who have been, you know, who are nuns, primarily nuns who have walked away, who say, eh, I'm really not interested in, in hearing what somebody has to say. When we invite them into a conversation about these things and we're open and we're not defensive and we, we hear them and we converse with them, it changes their willingness to be engaged. Now, they don't always, they don't always turn around and some of them stick for a while and they go, ah, this isn't for me. But it's definitely, we do recognize that it is a craft church, just like there are craft breweries and craft whiskey breweries. We are a craft church. We are surrounded by, within five miles of us, 10 churches of 1,500 or more people, including two that boast over 30,000. So we are kind of the alternative to the big mega church, huge ministry, and a return to the simple way of following Jesus who like in Luke's gospel, for instance, is either, seems like he's either going to involved in or coming from a party or a meal. <laughs> you've got to be just engaging. You've got to be a John Mark Comer guy. Are you? I am. I, like I thought Mark. so. I'm just listening yeah. to you and I was like, I feel like I'm listening to something he would say. So yes. um, let's, uh, let's do a shift, uh, ironically, okay. because ironically. as we think about your book, uh, Shift, Catalyzing Creative Change in Innovative Christian Ministry, it sounds to me, David, like listening to you, that uh, this is born out of your own experience. Like you, this book, from a missional standpoint, might be autobiographical. I mean, is, did a lot of this come out of your own kind of incarnational sense of what you've observed God doing in, in the ministry at the table? Well, certainly, I, you know, it would be, you know, you can only write from your experience, at least authentically, you can only write from your experience. And being a, um, a pastor in the P EPC as a, you know, a right brain, dominative, creative person, always thinking about how do how can we be how can we innovate and be more creative and, and able to engage our community these are these many of these things are the shifts that we had to make as a community and then i started getting opportunities to go other places and people would talk about well how did you make this transition how did you do this and, and they would say you know practically speaking and and really what i wanted to do is is find out in writing this book i wanted to find out a couple of things right so I knew that no one wants to lead a dying organization. And I know that a lot of my brothers and sisters in ministry feel as though they're, they're leading these dying churches. They can't figure out how to reach the next generation. And I realized that the ones that are successful, and it's not just churches, but organizations as a whole, their, their ability to be innovative, especially the leaders and members being innovative to respond to the shifting cultural context. And then not just that, but then a willingness to, to risk failure in order to be surprised by success. So when you hear the story of where we are now, there have been some times when we've had to step back and go, yeah, that didn't work. That idea wasn't so great. You need to kind of re reformat. And so what I was trying to do was um, not, um, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a member of the academy. I'm simply a practitioner. So I said, what would it, you know, what would it look like if I could create what basically amounts to a playbook? It's, it's a set of tried and true practices that I've used and many others that I've worked with have used um, to help them work with their staff, um, to brainstorm with creatives, um, 
trying to get fellow organizational leaders on the same page and then maybe engaging um, our parishioners in mission. And so I wanted to give somebody um, a hands-on resource for pastors and leaders. And that's what I've done. It's simply a hands-on kind of guide that says, all right, here's 250 or 300 words of um, support to a shift that I believe needs to happen um, if you're going to be effective in the culture of the community in which you live. And then not just giving you that theory, because there's lots of books about ministry concerning great ministries, you know, advocating innovation in ministry. But when it comes down to how do I exactly do that? What I've done is I've created a book where you have this theological shift and I argue for it biblically and culturally and socially. And then I say, all right, here's a way that you can put this into practice. So I call them shifts and there are 30 of them um, in each of these, in each of these categories, along with what I call hacks. And the hacks are just simple ways to to put this innovative shift into place, how you can do it individually as a church and then as a church trying to reach out. And so it's really not a book about change per se, even though we've done a lot of that. I think change is kind of methodical, change is slow. Um, and I'm a practitioner, so I don't have a whole lot of tolerance for this, like the snail's pace of change. And so I called it uh, shifts because I was trying to encourage the abrupt laying aside or abandonment of one way of doing things that's so ingrained in us that maybe needs to change in favor of trying something else. Well, and practical strategies on that, David, because churches are, well, I mean, they're built to resist change, right? I mean, there's, there's a sense to which as an organization, its purpose is not to, to, to quickly uh, make those kind of pivots. And, and, you know, we've learned coming out of the pandemic that that's where a lot of rub was for a lot of our churches, that they were required to make dramatic shifts and they weren't built for that. They, and, and our pastors haven't been trained uh, in doing that. So to be able to give real practical hacks on how to shift on a dime, both out of necessity, out of uh, any sense of urgency, as John Cotter might talk about it, but also right. a sense of just practicality in terms of the way a church has got to exist and survive and hopefully meet the needs of their community. That's right. And and so what I did was just to kind of narrow it down a little bit more. I divided the shifts into three categories because I think, um, first of all, that there's some shifts, I call it shifts in you, you, the reader, you, the leader mm -hmm. uh, that need to take place in your life as someone who's desiring to lead change. And then the second section of the book is on shifts in us. That's the shifts that need to take, pl uh, need to take place within the lives of those involved in the ministry. We might call them parishioners, if it's a you know NGO, your volunteers, the people. And then finally, the last section, which I thought was actually to me the most important is, what are the shifts we need to make for them? And I, I wasn't really thrilled with that shifts for them because I'm not a big us them guy. But one of the things I learned in doing this book um, through Fasaris um, Publishing, and I'll, I'll give them a little plug here at the end when we're done, was you don't get a whole lot of control over titles and things like that. And they like the shifts in you, shifts in us, shifts for them. Um, but that's all about how do we change as an organization to best position ourselves for ministry without changing the, the, the unchanging truths of the gospel, right? Right. And uh, do that in a rapidly changing world because you nailed it on the head. 
I mean, I'm an extraordinary candidate. I came through, I did my studies at Reform Seminary, and I've done some master's work beyond that. But I recognize that none of my training said anything, gave me any of these clues and these tools to do it. So we learned by trial and error. And I was like, well, maybe you can learn, those readers can learn from some of our own mistakes and from the things that have worked for us. Well, this is so incredibly helpful, uh, David. And I think uh, people, uh, I, I know as soon as uh, we get off this conversation, I'm going to order your book myself, and um, I'm hoping others will do the same. I'm, I'm looking at uh, the listing of your book on Amazon, and the description is, the predictable patterns and practices of the past are being jettisoned at a velocity and magnitude unparalleled in our lifetime. Now, I don't know if you wrote that before the I pandemic did. or not, but boy, that's, I did. I that's, did. that's prophetic. Um, navigating these rapidly changing cultural currents requires course knowledge, understanding, creativity, and most importantly, innovative thinking. And I think um, I don't remember one class in seminary, and I have two master's degree and a doctorate. I don't remember one on innovative thinking. And it's just not something we're trained to do. So having a practitioner like yourself come alongside and give us a playbook uh, with those kind of practices, those kind of hacks, if you will, is a, a huge gift. And I'm thinking, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but I've got to I've got to get you to commit to coming and speaking at our General Assembly next summer, because I think this is something everybody needs to hear. Well, I would appreciate that opportunity. It's It's interesting that you bring that up, because one of the things that I've been so surprised about is um, you'll notice if you notice, if you're looking at the, the website that the Ford was written by Leonard Sweet. Leonard Sweet is a, a Methodist futurist semiotics professor um, sure. from Drew university. I've been uh, his, he's mentored me for the past 25, 30 years and he was gracious enough to write my forward. So do but you then consider started, yourself a futurist? Um, certainly, yes, and a semiotician for sure, trying to <laughs> okay. read the signs of the times around us, like modern day right. um, uh, sages, so to speak. But what's interesting to me is the places that have picked up the book. So um, I'm scheduled to teach of all places, Dallas Theological Seminary. I know. Right. Let that sink in for just a moment. <laughs> um, I'm supposed to be teaching in July um, for a, uh, a brand new master's course they have. It's been picked up, well, let's say it's been picked up by four different seminaries for master's and doctoral level to get, um, they're trying to balance out the kind of 80 to 90% theory and 10% practice part of it. And we're not just talking D-mins, we're talking THD type programs, even PhD programs, where they're trying to kind of balance out a little bit of that. And so I was like, oh, that's was totally surprising when I get the call from this saying, hey, can we do an interview? We want you to come down and teach. We want you to come do this. A couple of uh, denominations have picked it up and asked me to come and speak. Assemblies of God, a couple other uh, groups up in, um, up in Washington State and up in Detroit. So all of this just it's a God thing. Cause I had I just wrote it because so many people in my faith community and it's in my actual um, dedication, everyone who said to me, you should just write, you should write. Well, as a right brain creative writing was a discipline that scared me. Um, mm. And so I have to give props to um, Dr. David McDonald and my friends at uh, Fasaurus chapter house Um they offered me this opportunity, um, and the chapter house, believe it or not, is in Jackson, Michigan. Um, it's a headquarters for Christian ministerial innovation, um, and I'm on, I'm on the, the teaching staff there. And so we bring in young pastors, and we hold 
training, online school, we have cohorts and retreats. And he said, well, this is a book we need. This is the first book we need to write um, as part of our publishing. And so there it is. And I had to give props out to them because he, as a fellow right brain creative, was like, I can help you through this. And he was great. And um, I'm thrilled with the book. I love when you open it, you'll see it's laid out differently. It's not a traditional style book. Um, it appeals to my artistic sense and a very practical resource. Well, the book is called Shift, Catalyzing Creative Change in Innovative Christian Ministry, and it is available anywhere you can get books. Uh, Amazon certainly has it available, and I think um, uh, I was just thinking, David, that uh, Postmodern Pilgrims uh, was a seminal work in my thinking years ago, Yes, um, and I think uh, this follows in the trajectory of that, but I love the fact that it, as a practitioner, it gets at these real practical things. And a couple of takeaways for me from our conversation today, this idea of a craft church and the idea of risking failure, uh, risking failure to be surprised by success. And perhaps uh, we come back with a part two sometime in the next year and follow up on some of those ideas because I think um, those would be a blessing to the church. Well, thank you. I'd love to do that. And I understand you're heading off to Uganda here soon. And, and how could we be praying for you as you go to do that? Well, um, about five years ago, um, I founded an organization. It's a registered 501c3 and uh, international NGO called Uganda Shoe Trees uh, that works with entrepreneurial educators in rural Uganda. So we empower them through connecting philanthropic individuals here in the West and organizations with these educational entrepreneurs to try to solve the education crisis there in Uganda. So uh, I'll be leading uh, three different teams uh, one, the first team is from Texas A&M University. They're coming over to work with our, our farmers in our community to help increase their yield on coffee. We're in the big coffee growing region. And then um, the alumni of the um, master's program in entrepreneurship and ministry innovation from Tabor College is following them up and they'll be there for um, nine or 10 days doing work, you know, finding out what we're doing and kind of seeing how this model works for um, church planning and, and other, you know, business as ministry ventures. And then finally, a group from my own church, um, the table coming over to help us minister to the five churches that we've uh, been planting and overseeing for the last 20 years. So prayers appreciated for COVID travel, which is a pain in the it neck. Really uh, um, we've been doing it. We traveled about four or five times during COVID. And so we're hoping this time it'll be a little bit smoother and then safety for everybody while they're there. Well, I can tell you, I was in Sierra Leone about uh, two months ago and traveling back and forth was really challenging. So it is. All right. Well, David, thank you very much. It's been a blessing to me. I'm confident a blessing to our listeners and hopefully those in the EPC are going to share this good conversation outside of uh, the EPC with their family and friends, neighbors, and coworkers and like it and share it on social and uh, we'll be praying for you as you head to Uganda and back and we'll look forward to having a follow-up conversation I think you and I are going to go deep in all things Uganda and Sierra Leone one day in the near future I'd look forward to it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, David. So my friends, that concludes our conversation for today. Again, please, please, please uh, share this with others. I think it will be a blessing to the church. And we end with that good word from God's word from Colossians chapter one. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things. And my friends, that's the, the Greek words, ta pontos there. And there's nothing outside of that. It's all inclusive. 
all things, there's no exceptions, all things have been created through him and they're for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together for he is the head of the body of the church and his name is Jesus and we follow him because he's our savior. Until the next time, my friends, grace and peace to you from In All Things from the EPC. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.